0: The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today.
1: Oh, happy Friday, everybody. Welcome to Scorebox Easier Headlines with Karen Cho. Aramelia League and myself, Steve Sedgwick. Okay, let's move on. Look at this. The S&P 500 briefly cracks 5,000 in the final minutes of trade, marking a new milestone for the index and its ninth record close of the year. Well, the breakthroughs continue. Japan's Nikkei hitting 37,000 for the first time in 34 years before pulling back whilst Hong Kong equities dip before the start of the Lunar New Year holiday.
2: L'Oreal posts a miss on sales and profit as the French cosmetics giant reveals waning sales in its North Asia and Chinese markets. President Biden sidesteps charges over a special counsel report into the handling of classified documents as he lashes out at accusations over his mental capacity.
3: My memory is fine. My memory, take a look at what I've done since I become president. None of you thought I could pass any of the things I got passed. How'd that happen? You know, I guess I just forgot what was going on.
2: Bull is out and we're past 5,000 on the S&P 500 for the first time ever. Let's take a look at the finish though and uh, what the market saw. We've uh, been climbing to this level, don't forget, we've had a lot of AI hype, we've had a lot of changes around monetary policy, some of it uh, expectations of a rate cut, those expectations massaged, but in session, uh, we traded briefly over the 5,000 point mark for the first time, fresh all-time intraday high and a record close, again just shy in that record close of the 5,000 mark but still stunning performance week to date we've marched up by about eight tenths of a percent it is the fifth positive week in a row that we've seen on the boards and as a result uh, fairly sizable gains now for the major market off that pandemic low in case you're wondering the size the bounce if you time that entry point point, 128 percent higher is uh, what you've had since that pandemic bounce in terms of the big moving stocks uh yesterday it was disney for the s p 500 but i think you all know the handful of names that have lifted this market the magnificent seven let's take a look here today uh, so far we've seen microsoft and again that leadership has been somewhat evident this week for microsoft as we've bounced Microsoft has been part of that journey up 10%. Nvidia, I mean, the AI hype has been stunning and Nvidia is very much at the forefront of that 40% higher. It is one of the number one AI stocks out there. Meta as well, 32% higher. Those two names very much attached to the AI journey in 2024. And you can see as a result, the outsized performance there versus other names, the so-called momentum name Tesla fading down 23%. So far year to date, even Apple coming off 2% versus Gains an Alphabet and Amazon up 11%. Steve?
1: Yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll come to this with our guests, but it, all that glistens isn't gold, is it? We know that uh, there's a hell of a lot of stocks that have gone nowhere this year. We'll come to that with our guests in a few moments. Uh, Richmond Fed President Thomas Barkin has backed the FOMC to take its time, yes, same old story, take its time before deciding when to cut interest rates. Barkin said he wanted to ensure, yes, (laughs) how many times can we rewrite this script? He wanted to ensure that inflation is under control, citing robust demand and a historically strong labour market. I'll tell you what, we have to say the same thing in a different way every day almost, don't we? Uh, Fed fund futures are currently pricing in an 82% chance of rates being kept on hold at March's meeting. Uh, the U.S. weekly jobless claims edged lower in the week to February 3rd, coming in at 218,000, down from the week before and below expectations, despite a raft of layoffs in the tech sector. Continuing claims also came in shy of expectations at 1.87 million.
2: Let's get to Matt Orton, who is Chief Market Strategist of Raymond James Investment. Matt, as we take a look at the S&P 500 now, we consider the forward uh, price-to-earnings ratio here. We've got 20.4 times that uh, level last reached February 2022 and, of course, well above the historic average of 15.7%. Is that a sell signal for you?
4: Hey, good morning karen always great to join you and it's not for me i think one of the biggest pushbacks i've been talking to clients about because there's naturally concerns when you're sitting at all-time highs valuations might feel a little bit stretched relative to to what we might have been used to you know i say look at how the market has evolved and changed over the past 10 20 30 years to me bringing out a number an average a median forward p.e multiple that's based on where the market was 10 20 years ago just doesn't make that much sense because the market itself is very, very different. The economy in the US is very different from where it was even at the start of the global financial crisis. When you think of the market, it used to be heavier in energy, financials, a lot more parts of the value sectors. It's much heavier in growth right now. So to me, I'm perfectly comfortable paying up for growth in the market. I think Increasing market breadth is something I'd like to see, but valuations aren't that much of a concern because we're seeing earnings acceleration. We're seeing an inflection with respect to earnings across the broader market. So it gives me hope that we're going to start to see things broaden out. And as long as we're growing into those multiples, I think we should be comfortable paying 19, 20, even 21 times uh, forward earnings for, for the market.
2: Matt, I want to pick up on the diversification theme because there was hope that we would stretch out beyond the magnificent seven, but even in the magnificent seven, we seem to be now sub two of those constituents, a fade on Apple and Tesla at this point. Could it be the very opposite? Could we get more targeted strategies even from here down to just five stocks?
4: Yeah, whether it's our super six, fantastic five, I don't know how we want to describe the cohort of companies that that are actually driving the market. It has been a narrow market. But, Karen, I think one of the issues with the narrowness of the market also just comes back to index construction. The S&P 500 is no longer a good barometer of the average stock. I mean, you have 30 percent or so of the index that's concentrated in six or seven companies. That is not looking at the market of stocks. When you actually look, when you break down the entire S&P 500 so far this year, over a third of the constituents of the index are actually Or are are actually outperforming the broader index itself. Fifty percent of the index is actually up this year. So you're seeing decent results. You just don't see it at the index level because everything is masked by the heavy weight of of the bigger names. And in fact, there's 54 stocks in the S&P 500 that are up over 10% this year. And a lot of them are in healthcare. We even have like a Procter and Gamble and a Walmart that are close to being up 10% this year. So there's decent breadth with respect to the gains. We're just not. seeing that at an index construction level, which is why when I talk to clients, I think selectivity is the key going forward. You don't have to own the index, but there's a lot of stocks that you can pick up, you can get diversification and play this broadening theme as earnings continue to beat expectations.
1: Okay, Matt, I'll, I'll pick up a couple of your thematics and challenge you in a gentle way, if I may. Uh, by the way, I like the, the, the name of your piece you is, everything is awesome. Let's me let let's take a side. You can be president business in the Lego movie uh, and I'll be Emmett. I'll be the disruptor and you can be the man who wants all the models made perfectly as well. Look, you said there's decent breadth to the rally because 50% of stocks are up. I think there's decent depth, decent depth and breadth to uh, the decliners because 50% are down. So why do you prefer the 50% are up rather than the 50% are down as being actually more representative of what's going on in U.S. corporates and the U.S. economy as well? Because there's more breadth and depth in different sectors in the ones that are going down than the ones that are going up. We've seen that with the concentration of the magnificent five or six.
4: Yeah, you know, Steve, it's a good point because... Like you said, 50% of the index is also down, but I bring it up because all we hear about is the Magnificent Seven or whatever this cohort of market generals is, as if those are the only names that are working in this market. They're not. There's plenty of opportunities. And so, you know, you have so much cash that's sitting on the sidelines, that's looking for a way to come back into the market. So when I look for opportunities, the fact that things are, that there's more than just the Magnificent Seven working, that to me is encouraging. And when you look at some of the contrarian plays of sectors that were beaten down last year, like healthcare, dividend growers, the dividend paying stocks were, were crushed last year relative to the market, you're starting to see life at that part of the the market. And so I think there's opportunities for clients. Same thing industrials, companies that are levered to some of these long-term secular growth themes like reshoring, bringing production back to the US, also um, infrastructure spending, and I'll say defense spending more in the software space. You're seeing really good earnings results for companies. And so to to your main point of the question, 50% being down, what I say is be selective, know what you own, in the market, because if you're able to do that, you have a really good chance of outperforming.
1: Uh, Great argument, Matt, as well. Um, Quick expansion to the the smaller stocks as well, the Russell 2K, still 20% below its 2021 highs as well. Do we need to look at the uh, smaller, medium-sized companies as well, or actually are the ramifications of higher interest rates, which will hit them more aggressively because there's more cyclical stocks in there, is it just too dangerous a strategy to go down the value chain just yet?
4: yeah it's a really good question Steve, and i think the risk reward further down the market cap is looking more attractive again i think the key is being selective because within a space like the russell 2000 there's a lot of companies that don't have earnings you have 10 or 11 percent exposure to regional banks which we know still are having problems in this overall market so again it's that theme of selectivity owning higher quality names but Like you said, when you have an entire index that's 20% below its all-time highs, where I believe you're going to start seeing an earnings inflection over the next quarter or two, that to me, I think, can drive gains. And when you see small actually start to outperform, you can have very significant upside occur really, really quickly. So it's a place that investors are underweight and I think is a good opportunity to maybe start building a position, wait for momentum to build, and then add to it as that happens.
2: Matt, one of your calls is Google looking at the parent company. It had its highest quarterly revenue and profits in 26 years in its history recently. Why do you think there's still further mileage here for Google?
4: You know, Karen, I really like Google and Alphabet as a company because it's a free cash flow machine. There's a fairly broad, diversified business. And what the market has proven over the past couple of quarters is that it's discounted its ability to be a player in the AI space. So last quarter, the stock was down 12% or so after earnings because they didn't like its its cloud results. Now it beats on cloud results. It doesn't like its ad-driven results. But the market's just not appreciating its, its, its Gemini. AI abilities. When I talk to a number of tech company CEOs, when I ask them who's going to provide their AI building blocks, it's not open AI, it's Alphabet. So I think there's a long-term potential for them, plus a huge balance sheet to make acquisitions. And the stock is actually down over the past two years, despite the big gains last year. So at 19 times forward earnings, I think it's a really attractive play to get exposure to just a rock solid company.
2: CyberArk Software, another one you've called up to us. Why do you think this company is deserving attention at this stage?
4: Yeah, Karen, when you look at just the AI beneficiaries longer term, it's not just going to be your semiconductor names. There's so much more to it. And a big part of the market right now is cybersecurity. I mean, you saw earnings from Cloudflare overnight, which were fantastic. And you're seeing really good gains across the cyber complex. And, you know, this company in particular is at an inflection point for its earnings. Its valuation relative to other cyber companies is fairly reasonable, but you're starting to see good revenue earnings growth numbers. And the fact is it's leveraged to a key part of the corporate market to integrate a lot of um, cloud systems. I think that's going to be the way of the future uh, to make sure that your enterprises are protected because that's what's going to be important as AI continues to grow.
1: Uh, Matt, perfect. Thank you very much. Love speaking to you, actually. And I, I don't even know what time it is in uh, St. Petersburg. Probably was it one a.m.? What is
4: it? A little early. I'm starting my Friday early. <laughs> Good
1: man. We love that. Thank you so much, indeed. Uh, a lot of energy, and we appreciate all your calls, Matt. Matt Orton, Chief Market Strategist at Raymond James Investment.
2: We know what happens when you start your day early. You finish your day early too.
1: Oh, <laughs> we try to. <laughs> it's the one payoff, isn't it? Yeah. Um, right, the ECB needs more evidence. I'll hear more evidence. If I hear more evidence one more time, it'll be a policymaker talking to me, won't it? Because the ECB needs more evidence that inflation is heading back to target, according to policymakers Philip Lane and Pierre Wunsch. Uh, whose comments have dampened investor hopes for a rate cut in April or June. Speaking in Washington, the ECB chief economist Philip Lane said policymakers needed to be further along in the disinflation process before they can move, whilst the Belgian central bank chief Pierre Wunsch highlighted wage data as key. Meanwhile, the IMF has urged Japan's central bank to consider Ending its ultra-loose monetary policy and gradually begin to raise short-term rates. The IMF says upside risks to inflation have materialised in the past year. Karen, why have we put Arabile at the wall with this first read being L'Oreal?
2: Oh, I don't know. What do you think?
1: Because he's worth it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I definitely don't doubt it, but one thing is for sure, I needed more than most, right? So coming up on the show, sales growth slows for L'Oreal in the fourth quarter we will break down uh, a whole host of those results. That comes up after the break. Plus, it's Super Bowl weekend in Las Vegas, with the big game set to break betting records. We have the latest. From Sin City and we'll hear from AMS uh, Osram CEO Aldo Camper as the lightmaker aims to shine bright. Don't miss that exclusive interview. It's coming up at 830 CET.
2: L'Oreal missed on the top and bottom lines despite a near 7% rise in fourth quarter sales as its travel retail business feels the impact of Chinese reselling Regulations, Charlotte. with more, Charlotte. Was there anything in the report to suggest that the whole lipstick effect, the recession effect, is not <laughs> working? As you know, we see consumers start to change their habits, even if we're not in a recession at this point.
3: Well, maybe a little bit because I say for the consumer product section. So there's a bit where they have brands like uh, Maybelline or Nix, They said it was the best growth in more than 30 years. So maybe there is a bit of that. People pulling away some more expensive uh, spending and still wanting to treat themselves to so a little indulgence. So maybe there's a bit of an effect there because uh, consumer products was up 12. 12.6% like for like for the full year they're still up 7.7% just in Q4 suddenly so we see a bit of boost there but luxury that is now the biggest division for L'Oréal has also had a decent run up 4.5% for the full year 04 uh, for Q4 that's uh, where they have Aesop in particular you remember they made this big acquisition that they completed uh, back in August they said that brand in particular is off to a promising start there and they said that now L'Oréal is the global number one in luxury beauty uh, as well and that uh, for um, Dermatological beauty, there's a very interesting segment. One that is uh, quite small, but it's not the third largest one for L'Oreal. That's where they have brands like CeraVe, Vichy or La Roche-Posay doing extremely well. It's been quarter after quarter, after quarter very strong performance. They're up 27.3% like for like in Q4, 28% for the full year. So again, they're doing extremely well. Six uh, 6 years of double-digit growth for that segment in particular. But as you were saying in the introduction there, Karen, <laughs> all eyes were on China, the performance there. Suddenly so that was a big, big miss for North Asia. Asia down 6.2% in Q4, like for like. Same picture that we saw in Q3. In Q3 was also a big miss uh, in that region, uh, down 0.9% for the full year. So, as you were saying, they, they blame Daigu so the crackdown for the Chinese government, some of these resellers about these uh, products um, abroad and bring them into China to sell cheaper. They said that's having an impact uh, there. But certainly, there'll be uh, some concerned eyes on what's happening there in China and there are some investors saying, look, the boost of dermatological Beauty is really helping them um, offset, a little bit. It gives them a bit of a growth buffer on what's happening in China. But we certainly don't see the growth coming back in that region.
2: Dermatological Beauty, obviously an area where we we're talking about performance cosmetics things that actually work rather than expensive labels (laughs) that you use that actually have no impact. Uh, I want to pick up on just how cyclical and uh, the trade is around beauty at this stage, because if I look at Latin America, one of the comments that we had through this earnings season from a lot of CEOs exposed to that region is that you are seeing strong performance because the diversification of supply chains has meant various parts of uh, those uh, South American countries are doing particularly well. Is that coming across in the read? that that's what is taking place. It's the, the, it's the uh, cyclical nature mm-hmm. of economies that's supporting the performance for L'Oreal.
3: Well certainly looking at the numbers there for Q4 uh, sales were up 23% in that region and it was a similar picture for the full year. So it's a small segment for them but certainly one for growth and again one that they're looking at to help them uh, balance some of the regions where they're struggling a little bit more. Uh, Europe and North America was actually decent as well but certainly Latin America is one that will try to tap in a a little bit as well. So uh, looking for the full year again they didn't give any guidance. L'Oreal never gave a guidance. They remain optimistic about the outlook for the beauty market uh, and they expect to grow sales. They didn't announce a dividend of 6.6 euros per share, so that's up 10% compared to last year. But there will be a call at 98. And analysts will very much watch those comments on China, how they see the year starting. Of course, Lunar New Year could be a big boost for them. So they'll, they'll, the market will be watching this very closely. Charlotte, thank you very much for that. The
2: luxury travel market is estimated to expand more than $100 billion in the decade to 2032, reaching $2.1 trillion, according to Statista. CNBC's Tanya Bryan spoke to Rosewood Hotel Group CEO Sonia Cheng and asked her about the company's expansion plans.
0: We have a very exciting expansion plan. Um, currently, Rosewood, we operate properties around the world in uh, 19 countries. Uh, and we have a very strong expansion pipeline with 27 properties that are under development. We just opened Kona Village and then we're opening uh, Rosewood, Munich, uh, which is really exciting. Um, and in the next couple years, we have a strong commitment to Europe. Uh, so 2024, we'll be opening in Amsterdam. We are also opening our first project in Japan, uh, in Miyakojima. Uh, we're also opening in Doha, for example. Um, and then, of course, uh, uh, 25 would be our one of our key openings in London, our second property in London in Grosvenor Square. Um, so it's a very exciting uh, expansion plan, an exciting period for Rosewood. And in addition, in addition to opening hotels, uh, we're also expanding into different areas. So, for example, we're expanding into the residential uh, space as well with Rosewood residences. Uh, we also launched... a New uh, membership club concept, which is Carla and Co in Hong Kong, um, and that has been really successful with a very long wait list. Um, and we also, uh, you know, venture into our own uh, kind of wellness space, uh, Asaya. So we're going to expand that. So the goal really is to create. Um, not just a luxury hotel brand, but really a luxury lifestyle brand and really benchmarking not just uh, hotel competitors, but really entering into the luxury luxury brand space um, and really building that ecosystem and providing and curating a lifestyle to, to our consumers.
2: Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express.
0: For more
1: market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com or join us again on the show with me, Steve Sedgwick, and Karen Cho, weekdays on CNBC.